Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. But before I read that, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And then you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that you have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him out over the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Over the past couple of weeks since our last sermon series on the great hymns of the church, many of you have been sending me names of some of your favorite hymns by email. And, and believe it or not, those have been some of my favorite hymns too. Hymns like Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, or Holy, 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 or uh, Lift High the Cross, or even Here I Am, Lord, which we love to sing here at Faith Presbyterian. few of you have sent me some contemporary songs like Oceans by Hillsong or Ten Thousand Reasons, and I, I like those songs as well. But a couple of you sent me a song that I remember from my childhood, and I think I even shared it with you at an early, during an earlier sermon. It goes, the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple, the church is not a resting place, the church is the people. I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together. All who follow Jesus all around the world, yes, we're the church together. 
That's such a helpful hymn for us to remember during this time where we're apart and not able to do things the way we normally do. It's a reminder that we're still church even though we can't do those normal things, those things that we've become accustomed to. We're still church out there in the world. And that's what we're talking about throughout the month of August, what it means to still be the church even though we can't do those things that we are normally accustomed to doing. And we're using concepts of holy places in the Bible to help us learn what it means to to still be the church even now. And today we're going to focus on that holy place, the synagogue. Now there were synagogues in every little Jewish town, every little village all throughout ancient Israel. Jesus went to synagogue, as it says in our passage, all the time. The, the synagogue was different than the temple. The temple, of course, there was just one temple in Jerusalem. And people went there on pilgrimages, or they went there for festivals. They went there all the time to, to offer their sacrifices to God. But that was different than the synagogue. The synagogue was sort of like their home church. It's a place that in any village where there were at least 10 Jewish people, they could gather together and form their own worshiping community together. They worshiped together, they studied the Bible together, they they learned about God together, and learned about who they were supposed to be as Jewish people, faithful Jewish people together. They would come on and worship together, usually beginning with some prayer, reading the scrolls, the Torah scrolls together, and then they would preach and talk about those scrolls, what they just read, and then finally they would take some of their alms, their offerings together, and use those offerings to help people around them in need. Sounds a lot like what we do here at our church. And Jesus went to synagogue, and in fact, when he began his ministry, that was usually the first place he went to. He would go to the synagogue in whatever town he had had gone to, to to start his ministry there. There was even a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And in our story this morning, Jesus goes back to his hometown, to his home synagogue where he grew up. I can only imagine how happy the people were to see Jesus back home finally after many years or many months, however long it had been. You can just imagine the people welcoming him back. His old Sabbath school teacher reached out to him and said, Oh, I remember you when you were a little child. You've grown up to such a handsome man. Or some of his old friends got together and talked about the good old days. Or maybe a few people came and said, You know, your hair's grown a little bit, you need a haircut. That's what happens when you come back home after being away for a long time. But finally, Jesus gathered with those folks. They were so glad to hear him. And he, as they were started reading the Torah, he caught the eye of the attendant there and was welcomed up to come and read some of the Scripture himself and, and then talk about it, teach about it. That's what they did. They all, many of them taught in the synagogue. And Jesus read that passage from Isaiah, a passage that talks about the Jubilee, about forgiving debts, about setting captives free. And I can imagine those folks in his hometown said, oh, that's one of our favorite passages, and I can't wait to hear what he says about it. I wonder if he'll talk about how wonderful he loved Nazareth when he was growing up as a child. And I wonder if he'll talk about those deviled eggs that he used to love that I always brought to those Sabbath night suppers. Or I wonder if he'll talk about how I was his basketball coach and how much he learned from me. I wonder if he'll talk about how much he loved this synagogue and how wonderful we are. But then Jesus does something a little different. After reading that passage about setting the captives free, about forgiving debts, about... God making this jubilee happen. Jesus says, now is the time. 
Now is the time for those things to take place. Now is the time in your hearing of the word. And the people thought, now wait a minute. We like that passage. That's happening off in the future. But you mean right now? We're supposed to forgive people's debts, those people who owe us money. We're supposed to set captives free, those people who have hurt us. We're supposed to go out and forgive sins and forgive those people who have hurt us. You're expecting a lot of us, Jesus. Jesus, you've gone off and got a little too big for your britches. You've gone to meddling. But then Jesus makes it a little bit worse. He reminds them of two other passages from the Old Testament where the people of God had been unfaithful. And so instead of, of God sending Elijah and Elisha to go and help the people, he sent those prophets to go and help other people, non-Jewish people, who God loved all the same. And Jesus tells them, you are just like these people, these unfaithful people, and God is sending me to make you uncomfortable so that we can go help those people in need. Well, that just broke their hearts. They were overwhelmed that this child of their synagogue was now telling them that they needed to change, making them so uncomfortable. They were enraged so much so that they kicked him out of the, the, the synagogue and, and wanted to hurt him. Somehow Jesus survived that and got through that. But I can imagine how angry they were, how hurt they were, how heartbroken they were. This child of their synagogue has come back and told them, they're wrong, that they need to change. He's made them uncomfortable. That's not what the synagogue is supposed to be about. The synagogue is supposed to be a place where we all come together and we love each other, care about each other, lift each other up, and welcome each other, make people feel like they're at home. That's kind of how we see church a lot of the time. I think from time to time we pick churches because it's a place that makes us feel comfortable, makes us feel welcome, makes us feel overjoyed even because we get served and we get helped and we get nourished in the way we want to. But every now and then, Jesus seems to think the synagogue is a place where we should be uncomfortable. Jesus seems to think that the synagogue should be a place where if we're really being faithful to God, we should be made a little uncomfortable from time to time. That's why their hearts were broken and maybe why it's so hard for us to, to think of Jesus in that way, going and calling His home church to, to do something different. This church that nourished Him and helped Him to grow. But God calls us to be uncomfortable from time to time especially when we don't want to be uncomfortable. Times like now. I don't know if you've been feeling the same way I have over the past few months, but I've been very uncomfortable. Not just because we can't be together, but because there's so much going on in our world that is really challenging me. And my first reaction has been to try to, to protect myself and to maybe even turn the other way, but there's so many things going on in the world that I just can't ignore, and I've felt this calling, this calling from God, maybe this calling from, from Jesus, just like in this passage, to be uncomfortable, to look at the ways that I need to change my life. I've been uncomfortable about all of the ways that we've had to re-face racism in our world right now. I used to think that we had defeated racism, that we didn't have to worry about that anymore, but now here it is right back in our faces, and... I guess that just shows how naive I've really been. 
how much I need to be uncomfortable from time to time. And so I've tried really hard to just sit in that uncomfortable place, to think about the ways that God is calling me and challenging me to be a little bit better than I can be or I ever thought I was. God is calling me and challenging me with just that uncomfortable feeling to to think about ways that I can change my life and help those people around me in need. I'll tell you what I've done. I've been, on Sunday mornings after I watch our video, I've been watching other videos from other churches here in town, videos of African-American pastors who are preaching to other congregations here in Tallahassee, and it's helped me to hear what their experience is, what they're going through. I've also gone to our denominational website, PCUSA.org, and right at the top of the page there's a banner that you can click on, and I've clicked on that, and it gives me a whole bunch of resources about racial injustice, and it's videos and books and, and even little lesson plans that you can go through, and I've been trying to go through those things to challenge myself to think more critically about the ways that my life and my habits and all those things that I take for granted might actually be hurting other people. And it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because I don't want to think about the fact that I might be hurting someone else. I'm a good person after all. But every now and then, that's what the church should do. Call you to be a little uncomfortable. Not just to call the world around you to repent and change their ways, but call the church within, the people who sit in the pews on Sunday morning, to change, to repent, to try again, to try harder, to be better than we ever thought we could be. It's kind of like a little grit of sand that falls into an oyster. It makes that oyster uncomfortable, and and the oyster wants to try to kick that sand out, and it moves around and does all the things that it can to try to make itself comfortable again. And, And as that process happens, it eventually creates a beautiful little pearl. That's what happens when God calls us to be uncomfortable, to face those difficult questions and to face those difficult challenges and to look deep within ourselves about how we can be better because God knows that when we take that time and have that courage to make ourselves uncomfortable, something beautiful can happen. God's kingdom can be created right there in front of us through our words and our actions, through asking for forgiveness and through reaching out a hand in solidarity and care. That's happened many times in the history of our country and is continuing to happen right now. I heard a story just a couple of weeks ago about uh, a, a bill that was passed in the state of Georgia back in 2000. It was a hate crimes bill, a bill that was really supposed to, to bring people to justice who were committing crimes, all kinds of crimes based on racism and bigotry and prejudice of any kind. It was really supposed to bring them to justice. You would think it would be a bill that would be passed overwhelmingly, but believe it or not, back in 2000, the, the legislature of Georgia really debated it, almost got to a stalemate. There was one conservative representative from not too far away from here, just on the other side of Bainbridge. His name was Dan Ponder, and he had been thinking about this bill, what he needed, to, how he needed to vote, and he'd been even debating the bill with his own family at home, and they had been talking about, oh, we've got all these laws already. We don't need more. Don't worry about it. But something inside him was making him uncomfortable. He remembered being a child where he grew up and 
his nanny, who his family had hired, was an African-American woman, a woman who loved him, a woman who changed his diapers, a woman who fixed his meals and helped him go to school every day. And One morning while he was heading out to school, she leaned down to give him a kiss and he pulled away. And she looked at him and realized, you pulled away from me because I'm black. Well, he kind of denied it in the moment, but he knew it was true. And for his whole life, that little memory was making him uncomfortable. And it came to the surface now, now when he was having to debate this issue on the floor of the Georgia House of Representatives. And so he stood up in front of the whole house and gave this great impassioned speech talking about his history, talking about his family, his family from South Georgia who had been there for generations, who had owned slaves and who had fought in the Civil War and who had continued to to prosper there in South Georgia. His family who probably didn't support this bill and yet there was something inside him that made him uncomfortable and he knew it needed to change. And so he called on people on both sides of the aisle to vote for the bill. And when he was finished speaking, everyone on both sides stood up and applauded because he was willing to share his vulnerability about times in his past when he realized he had seen racism and looked the other way. He was willing to share his vulnerability about how he needed to change. And this was a chance to do it. That uncomfortable memory helped him do something incredible. If we're still the church during this difficult time, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable from time to time. I know it's hard, and I don't like taking a hard look at myself when I know that there are things there that might upset me or worry me. And yet if we're to be the church that God calls us to be, We have to be willing to be uncomfortable, to face that calling that God calls us to, to go out into the world and be better, be better than we are now. Because we all have ways that we can change. We all have ways that we can make our community stronger and better. No one likes to be uncomfortable. But in those moments when you feel God making you a little uncomfortable, I want to give you courage. I want to give you strength. Don't run away from it, but sit with it for a while. Because that may be a sign that God's about to do a new thing. That little bit of uncomfortable might actually become something beautiful. That's my hope for myself and my hope for our world. To the glory of God. Amen.